Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Do you have a joint account with your partner? As research shows modern couples are more likely to keep their finances separate, we look at how people are managing their money. Bye-bye to PPI. The deadline for claiming compensation for missold payment protection insurance has been and gone. But what consumer finance scandal could be next? And if you're about to head off to university, or are the parent of somebody who is, would you be able to pass the FT Money exam on student finance with flying colours? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, personal finance editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. Now, we share a lot of things with our nearest and dearest, but is a bank account one of them? Research by NetWealth, the challenger wealth manager, suggests that younger couples are shunning joint accounts and in fact are more likely to keep their money separate than previous generations. Joining me now in the studio to discuss is Charlotte Ransom, the founder and CEO of NetWealth. Welcome, Charlotte. Hi, Claire. Thank you. So your study found that older women were much more likely to have a joint account than younger women were. Yeah, um, that's right. Although our research really identified a new generation of financially independent women, which includes the data on joint accounts and also expands to savings and investments more broadly. Um, The report really suggests a generational shift in Mm. how UK couples and women are looking to manage their money while in a relationship. And I think there's a few reasons for this shift. Um, One is that women are marrying later in life, so typically on average now about at 34, and often therefore have a history of um, earning their own money and spending and managing it as they want. And so it's understandable that these women are less likely immediately to start pooling resources once they marry or enter a long-term relationship. Of course, there are practical benefits to managing money as a couple, um, such as paying off a mortgage or sharing costs when children arrive. And that's the likely reason for the shift that we see towards joint accounts for slightly older women with those new shared responsibilities. However, we did find that a desire for financial independence, control and security is the primary driver behind this new approach. Almost half of women holding assets separately from their partner are doing that in order to maintain financial independence, while a similar number simply want to manage their money as they wish. And maybe one reason for this is the backdrop of high divorce rates here in the UK. Um, The latest government figures show that two in five marriages end in divorce. So many UK women are pragmatically looking to establish uh, a safety net in case their relationship doesn't work out. Now, in response to the research that you did, um, I decided I was going to write about this in my column in the FT, um, but I wanted some more granular data. I wanted to know about the emotional reasons that couples might keep their finances together or separate. So I did an appeal 
um, on social media for my friends and followers to tell me how they manage their money um, as a couple. And, and interestingly, the most common response um, for, from people was that if they have children, they definitely had a joint account, but it could be a third account. It might not be their only bank account. There were some people who, who just had one account through which everything went through, particularly if the um, the woman usually, but not always, um, was a non-earner because she, she was staying at home to look after children um, and didn't want to have to say, can I have some money, please? Um, so there was there was like a, a necessity to share. Um, but then the other um, interesting trend that came out with those who did have a joint account for paying um, shared costs was the ratio method, which I quite liked, whereby the higher earner will put in a greater proportion um, of those costs um, than the lower earner will, because this is another big beef within relationships, particularly in my experience, mm-hmm. if, the, if the woman earns more than, than the man. But then there were some people, um, including a colleague at the FT, who said, I have actually got no idea how much my other half earns. Um, so there's really quite wide levels of, of, of range in the way that couples are managing this stuff. Yes, that's right. And we definitely do see variations of all the methods that you listed at NetWealth. I think, you know, from what we've seen, a successful approach is primarily based on full transparency rather than any particular method. And I was interested to see in the research that only 50% of women had a complete understanding of their partner's financial situation. And I think that might also be a reason for the shift that we're seeing towards this growing financial engagement as well as independence. And how else do you think our financial behaviour is changing? Well, I think there's some really good signs in terms of how our behaviour is changing. And that's in line with women being increasingly well-educated and earning more and taking greater financial responsibility as a result. I mean, after all, over half, actually 53% of millionaires are expected to be female by 2020, according to the Centre for Economics and Business Research. Um, But while it's excellent to see the wealth of women growing and with it this sense of financial independence and engagement there is still real room for improvement. And one of the most significant barriers that I see that women need to overcome is investing. Um, You and I, Claire, have discussed this before, that women can be what we call recklessly cautious. Mm. Um, So that is, we're, we're super focused on saving money for those really personal, distinct goals, whether it's our children's education or looking after elderly parents or thinking about our retirement needs. But we tend not to invest sufficiently to meet those needs. And, you know, one example of that is only 13% of ISAs held by women are invested in stocks and shares, with women more often preferring to hold cash and therefore, crucially, missing out on the opportunity to grow their assets year on year. And this is a huge mistake given the longer term nature of the goals that we have, um, where there is time to ride out potentially bumpy market returns and gain from investment returns rather than get stuck with appallingly low cash returns. Um, And I think that is something that women have found harder to get their heads around and to get comfortable with this this idea of taking market volatility. And, you know, speaking from, from my perspective as chief executive of net wealth, I think the wealth management industry can help a lot in this respect. Um, Female investors are very motivated by financial goals that are in line with our personal lives. And with more user-friendly tools and better approaches, I think women are more likely to engage and have better financial outcomes as a result. So this, for me, is the next critical step for women in terms of becoming more fully financial, confident and aware. 
Well, let's hope we can get that figure 50% to 100% in time. Thank you very much there to Charlotte Ransom, Chief Executive of NetWealth. You can read my column now about joint accounts, six ways that couples can manage their finances. It's online at ft.com slash money. Ooh, a text message. Who could that be from? Well, after last Thursday, it's not going to be an annoying text about claiming back missold payment protection insurance, better known as PPI. However, that doesn't mean that you will stop getting annoying text messages altogether. The claims management industry is already looking for the next consumer mis-selling scandal. And joining me to predict what that might be is Nicholas McGaw, the FT's retail banking correspondent. Welcome, Nick. Hi. So. The claims management industry, quite a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. So ironically, banks' initial resistance to compensating people for PPI a couple of years ago has unintentionally nurtured this industry and revenues that they generate by sort of taking a proportion of the bank's payouts have gone from 104 million a year before the PPI scandal to 600 million in the last year for which we've got data. And there's a sort of 750 odd firms being regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. 755. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a reduction of what it was last year because some new rules came in that, and as PPI was coming to an end, some came down. But it's still, together, that that's big enough that it's kind of changed the whole economics of how banks deal with products. There was a time where, from a kind of cynical perspective, ripping people off or aggressively pushing products was kind of worth the risk because you might have to refund one or two people, but you'd still make a profit overall. Now there's this massive industry kind of waiting to pounce the second that banks slip up. So on the one hand, good for consumers. On the other hand, not very good value because, of course, as we've learned with PPI, the claims managers can take up to 25% of the compensation on offer when the banks have had to make it so easy um, for us to claim with online forms and so on and so forth. But they're now busy looking for their next gig and they think they may have found something with the payday lenders. Yeah, so um, payday lending is an interesting one because it's been there's been a massive increase in complaints over the last year or two, um, most of it driven by CMCs. But it's kind of, it looks like it's only going to be a bit of a temporary feast for them, um, partly because basically payday lenders aren't as rich as banks and they're not big enough to sustain a whole industry of complaints. So what are people with payday loans complaining about? So payday lenders were forced to put in uh, new rules on affordability and a kind of cap on maximum payments in 2015, which they did. Um, and sort of, so all new loans since then have been, I mean, that might be still expensive, but they're not as high as the things mm. were before that, where people like Wonga were charging kind of 5,000% plus. Um, the issue for them has been that as with PPI, um, the c- complaints have been coming in about past sort of historic loans that were done before the new rules came in. Um, the issue, as with PPI, has been that um, the complaints are coming in about historic loans that were made before the new rules came in. Um, this is especially difficult for payday lenders because most of the loans are actually quite small. It's a large number of fairly small loans. Um, and if you don't agree to the complaint that comes in from a CMC and it gets pushed onto a financial ombudsman, you have to, even if the company, even if the lender wins and doesn't compensate, they still have to pay £550 to the ombudsman just to process it which is often more than the size of the actual loan. So they just end up paying out to everyone that comes through to such an extent that like, a lot of the biggest lenders have just gone out of business. Well, and, and indeed, that was what did um, for Wonga. But 
targeting payday loan companies isn't the only game in town for the claims management companies scratching around um, looking for another scandal to cap into. Now, you've written a feature in FT Money this week about what things other than the payday lenders these claims management companies could focus their attentions onto next. And the bad news for listeners is that there could be quite a lot of potential mis-selling around in the market that these companies could hence latch onto. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's always difficult to be sure about what could happen next. I mean, who knows what inventive ways of making money banks and other financial companies might come up with in the meantime that we decide down the road weren't particularly fair. But there are already a couple of areas that both CMCs and the and the regulator are looking at in the short term, plus some potentially kind of bigger long-term risks that at the moment are not as developed. Um, one thing that you might have noticed just from the sort of adverts you hear around on the radio and see on TV from CMCs is they're increasingly targeting uh, ICEs, especially stocks and shares ICEs. Um, there's often a worry that um, salespeople didn't properly explain the risks to customers who are uh, putting their money into these things, or in some cases that customers might have been paying for active stock management that in reality wasn't particularly active. Um, not understanding risk or properly explaining risk to customers has also been an issue with things like mini bonds and innovative finance sizes, which are all things I'm sure we've discussed Absolutely. on this <laughs> podcast. Um, at the same time, the FCA is already worrying about pensions since the new freedoms came in a couple of years ago, um, which range from some people, again, receiving poor advice about the risks of what they do with it, uh, their cash, and in some cases being pushed to put it all into like full-on scams um and then slightly further away from the kind of personal finance but still relevant to a lot of people is looking at small and medium-sized business banking where it's not necessarily that the FCA's got a specific product in mind at this stage but there's just a kind of general sense that it's a little bit too profitable compared to regular retail banking so they're doing a bit of their exploratory work at the moment to try and understand why this is and whether uh, there's kind of some unfair practice going on. Well, certainly in the feature that you wrote for FT Money, you look at the, the, the expected scale of, of PPIs around £50 billion in compensation that people expect will be the final um, total when all of the current complaints have washed through the system. But the next biggest, although it was only nearly £5 billion, was in fact a business-related scam. Yeah, that's right. There is a issue that has been rumbling on for years now and is there's still people complaining about it as it was to do with um, businesses who were kind of missold quite complicated uh loans that in many cases they didn't need or or that it came with sort of interest rate hedges that they didn't need and even if they could have benefited they really didn't understand what they were doing because small businesses are sometimes treated as if they're as knowledgeable as a large corporate with a dedicated finance department when in fact it's often one or two people and not particularly different to what regular retail banking would be. Now, further in the future, um, you interviewed the FCA and they gave you an interesting insight into what they're looking at when it comes to the bank's future behaviour. Yeah, so this last one, it's a little bit more speculative, but for me, I think is the most interesting is what banks and other companies are, are going to start doing with customer data. Mm-hmm. So um, new technology lets people do lots of clever things like if you've got much more data points on someone's background, you might know work out, for example, that, Claire, you're more likely to repay a loan. So we... <laughs> well, I should think so. I'm the money editor of the FD. <laughs> um, so therefore, why not give you a cheaper rate on it? Um, but they might also look through and be like, well, she could, she's probably going to repay, but 
it looks like she doesn't shop around as much as maybe you could do, is more likely to be willing to pay and could afford to pay something higher. So you start mm. overcharging people because you see that you could. Um, that's a fairly simple example. But as you go into it in more detail, you get down into kind of lots of murky ethical questions about what type of data is appropriate to inform your decision making. And this is all, it's such a new area and something that's been, is still in its early stages. So at the moment, there aren't a huge amount of rules around it. But that's why the FCA is so, is basically left a warning at the end of, I sat down with Jonathan Davidson, who runs the kind of retail banking supervision. We talked for ages. It was like his last warning to people was like, you might not be breaking any rules at the moment, but you will be. Um, and as we saw with PPI, once those rules have changed, you can complain about the stuff that happened beforehand. So you can't just make a quick buck in the meantime. Well, I wonder who that could be from. <laughs> Thank you very much there to Nicholas McGaw, the FT's retail banking correspondent. Nick wrote our piece, PPI, What Could the Next Consumer Mis-Selling Scandal Be?, which you can read online now at ft.com slash money. And if you have any thoughts about what it could be, then drop us an email. You can get in touch with our team, money at ft.com, or tweet us at ftmoney. If you're about to head off to university, or the parent of somebody who is... Can you pass the FT money exam on student finance? Well, every year, parents complain to us that they're unaware of how much they will have to contribute to their son or daughter's education. Because whilst everyone can get a student loan to borrow the cost of their tuition fees, the amount that students can borrow as a maintenance loan to help pay for their rent and other costs varies according to how much your parents earn. Well, here to give us a primer is Lindsay Cook, the FT's money mentor columnist. Welcome, Lindsay. Good morning. So can you explain the maths on parental contributions, please? Well, they're quite frightening because we all know about the 9250 for tuition fees and they're complained about a lot. But um, the cost of living when you're at university varies uh, according to where you go. And um, if parents earn over 67000 and that's after pension but before tax and taking into account for other children, but it's not a high salary, they can be paying um, 5500 towards their child's maintenance or living costs in London. In London, someone living away from home, the top maintenance loan is 11672 That's halved if the parental income for an under 25 year old is um, over 67,000 which seems very little and which have done surveys and they say oh they've got um, I think it's 25 percent uh, um, cut back on luxuries because most people on those sort of salaries don't have a spare 6,000 sitting around. Um, some parents in this survey said they'd have to take a second job to support their children through university. Um, and a third said they cut back on day-to-day -day, um, cost of living. Um, the rising cost of student accommodation is quite phenomenal. Uh, it's up 31% since 2011-12. Um 5% in the last year, now accommodation accounts on average for 73% of the maintenance loan, which in London, on the top notch, you're still only ending up with about £60 a week for your food, your travel, etc. Well, I mean, it's implied that the wealthy families will just top up the difference with this parental contribution, but all too often parents may be unwilling or unable to contribute that amount. I mean, you've, you've, you've 
pointed out that the rent is the um, is is the biggest problem. But what other financial surprises should students and their families be prepared for? Well, they need to work out a budget before they go. Um, but it's it's not only the amount of rent per week, but quite often um, students are required to pay their rent before their student loan comes in. Um, some use a student overdraft to facilitate that, but that's getting them right into bad habits straight away and they need to be with a bank that offers enough to cover that first three months or whatever. Um, others, it's the, the travelling to and from university, uh, the travelling to and from college. Well, yeah, because more and more students are living at home because they just can't afford the cost of these soar away rents. Yes, uh, and they there are quite a lot of um, course costs that are additional. So if you're doing archaeology, you've got to go and uh, do a site uh, visit. If you're doing a language, you may have to travel. So you need to know in advance what the costs are going to be. And the, the, the research suggests that students are currently earning £291 a month just to fill the gap between what they get from parents or from the state and what they need. And that, if you think of them on a minimum wage, it means they're um, probably doing, what, 30, 35 hours a month, which probably could have been better used studying. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, from our own family's experience, um, when my middle stepson went to university, he did go um, very far away. He moved into a university-run halls of residence, and I was delighted that we could pay his rent on credit card because it meant that I got the points. <laughs> um, of course, I paid it off um, immediately the next month, but that did get around the issue of having to pay the rent before the loan comes in. But then halfway through his first year, um, we had um, quite an unwelcome surprise. Um, he was going out to... Um, rent a home from a private landlord in Bristol. But because there's so much demand from students, the buy-to-let landlords can charge what they like, but they can also insist on three months' rent up front because obviously they're letting a flat to, to students, so they want to have a, um, a, a large um, margin, shall we say, of, um, of error for anyone getting anything wrong. And also we had to rent the house for the whole year, even though they wouldn't be able to stay in it for 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 the duration of the summer holidays. So parents are really often unwilling victims that, that <laughs> of the system. In, that is increasingly the case. Um, if you are in university halls, it's often 40 weeks um, that you pay for, but most of the commercial ones are moving gradually up from 46 to 51 weeks. Um, most of the commercial ones ask for a parent to be a guarantor so that if the student doesn't pay their rent, they come begging to you or worse than begging so there are lots indeed of, indeed uh, and one nasty little thing that the um, universities can do if the student hasn't paid their rent they can deny them the right to go and collect their degree certificate or even not let them graduate in a few cases gosh well lindsay while you're here um your top tips for um, getting on as well as budgeting you mentioned getting the best student bank account which ones would you say at the moment are the best ones on the market well i think conversation between parent and student is a good thing starting early it's too late now for this year but even so at this late stage let them talk about what it's going to cost them and parents have probably done it before but 
so that the parent is aware, because a lot of the research by which and other people, um, the National Student Survey, um, parents are unaware how much the state is expecting them to pay. Parents don't get a letter saying, little Johnny's going to university, you should be putting up £360 a month or whatever it is. That is the average that parents pay. Now, when you think that's over £4,000, I bet if you ask in the newsroom in the street, most parents would not know how much they are expected to pay towards the maintenance of their youngsters at university. Well, thank you very much there. To Lindsay Cook, you can read her column, Parents of University Students Face Hard Financial Lessons, online now at ft.com slash money. That's it for The Money Show this week. If you want to get in touch with me, Claire Barrett, or our team of writers, or even suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about on this podcast, email us, money at ft.com. And to stay up to date with the latest money news, you can follow us on Twitter at ftmoney, or even check out our new LinkedIn page. Search for Financial Times, your money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.